Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our series on the book of Romans. Now, we are in Romans chapter 6, if you have a Bible handy. If you don't, because you're driving, please, please, please do not grab a Bible and open it up. I promise you, I will read all the verses we're reading today in this podcast here. But we are going to be in Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be starting in verse 15. And as always, a little bit of background on what St. Paul has been talking about thus far. Chapter 6 is addressing and countering the willy-nilly party. The antinomians, or people accusing St. Paul of being an antinomian, somebody who believes that you can just do whatever you want and sin all willy-nilly after you've been saved. Thus far in chapter 6, St. Paul is saying, wait, 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 wait. You can't be a willy-nilly guy and be a Christian because in your baptism, God has changed you. This isn't you anymore. You are no longer a slave to sin, so don't be that. Live out what you are. But with that come some tricky questions that St. Paul has to answer. Sure, I'm baptized. Sure, I am made new. But you said sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, if we are under grace, well, then why do I need to worry about obeying God? That's kind of the thing that he's going to be answering today. So let's go ahead and we're just going to read the whole passage and then we will return as we usually do and look at it verse by verse. Starting in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So at first blush, this passage sounds like we're just treading old ground. Thankfully we're not. But St. Paul does kind of repeat himself. In the first verse, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1. And then in verse 15, he asks another question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? 
sounds like he's answering the same question, but not quite. In chapter 6, verse 1, he is addressing this idea of antinomianism based on the power of Christ's atonement. Think of it as coram deo, facing God. The willy-nilly party answers St. Paul saying, oh, well, if Jesus' atonement is that much better and that much more powerful than anything that happened under Adam with the fall of humanity, then, well, goodness gracious, that expands every single time I sin, I should be able to do what I want. In verse 15, since St. Paul had just said, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace, now the question is, from the willy-nilly party, well, if I'm not under law but under grace, well, then there's no commandment against me sinning, right? If I'm under grace, then I should be able to do what I want. And of course, it's the same stinking conclusion. I should be able to do what I want. I should be able to sin all willy-nilly. To this point, just like St. Paul says in chapter 6, verse 2, he says, by no means. In the Greek, that's basically, heck, no. N not one iota of countenancing this. Why? Well, in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Consider here that he is saying either. That's a big, 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 big either there. <laughs> because... If the antinomian wants to put freedom as his highest good, his ideal here, this means that that is out of the equation. You are either going to obey sin or you are going to obey righteousness. You're going to do one or the other. You don't have a choice except which one. You can't not play this game, so to speak. St. Paul is saying, if you are presenting yourself as a slave to sin, meaning you're engaging in sin, you are obeying those passions and desires and temptations, then you are presenting yourself as a slave to that. You are obeying false morality, bad morality. You are obeying sin versus obeying righteousness or obeying God's commandments. Now, obeying sin leads to death. There's nothing controversial in saying that because you merit God's wrath against you and impenitent, high-handed sinners, those in a state of mortal sin, well, you're going to die. You will go to hell. That is that, period. And much of our own sin, even that which is forgiven, in this world, in this fleshly meat sack that we live in, yeah, even the sins which you have been forgiven of, well, they're probably going to kill you. At some point or another, we do have to face the consequences for our sin. Now, note here that he does say, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. What is he saying here? Obedience does not lead to your eternal life. This is not the same kind of righteousness that we have imputed to us by faith in Jesus Christ. 
Remember, this is the same St. Paul that wrote in Ephesians 2, 9 that we're saved by grace, not of works, lest someone should boast. If he did intend for this to be the same kind of righteousness that merits eternal life, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, then he would not have said obedience which leads to righteousness. He would have said which leads to life. In fact, I would say it is very intentional that he did not use the opposite of death, life, in this sentence. When he says, uh, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? We cannot forget that St. Paul is a Hebrew. He is a Benjaminite. He is trained at the feet of Gamaliel. This means that he is going to structure at least some of his language based off of the things we see in like the book of Psalms with parallelisms, with chiasm. And in Hebrew poetry, parallelism has this funky way of working. There are synthetic parallelisms where the same statement is more or less repeated to amplify the same message. Then there are oppositional parallelisms where one thing is said and then the opposite thing is said or something that opposes it. So a good example of an oppositional parallelism here would be God blesses the righteous but he curses the wicked. Sure, these are not opposite statements. He's not saying he blesses the righteous and he curses the righteous. Instead, by showing opposing things, antonyms in one way or another, light and dark, good and bad, you're seeing how the dynamic works. St. Paul here is doing what is called an interrupted parallelism. You do see this with the funeral dirges in the Psalms. Whenever they have an odd meter where it's kind of like 5-4 or 3-4, it is a sudden cut off. And occasionally you get parallelisms in the psalm where they say, okay, here is the oppositional parallelism, but instead of antonyms here, I'm going to use words that you're not expecting to surprise you, to get your attention. So we would be expecting St. Paul to say, uh, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to life. We're expecting him to say that because we have the antonyms there of sin and obedience, and we're expecting an antonym between death and life, but he does not say that. He's getting our attention by saying sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Hmm. Well, now that's got my attention. And he's going to be taking my attention and explaining it further. Now again, this is a different kind of righteousness. There are two kinds of righteousness. There is divine righteousness, or righteousness coram Deo, facing God. And then there is righteousness coram Mundo, facing the world. It's also called civic righteousness where I'm not pleasing God necessarily by obeying his laws. You cannot please God without faith. 
However, somebody without faith may still be reckoned civically righteous by those around him. And there is a little bit of a blurred line between righteousness coram Deo and righteousness coram Mundo. But we know that he's not speaking about righteousness coram Deo because it is that righteousness which leads to eternal life. And you cannot earn that by your works. He has spent the past five chapters demonstrating that to us, that we're all sold under sin. We cannot do good by ourselves. We cannot earn this. So he's not going to be saying here that you get the kind of righteousness that merits eternal life based on just your obedience to God. No, no, no. It will give you a personal sense of righteousness or civic righteousness in a good way, in something that helps with your sanctification and assists in your Christian life. You're going to live the life that you live based on your deeds. And that's important to keep in mind. But we move on to the next verse here. But, thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, what is the standard of teaching to which these people were committed? Well, that would be the gospel. You are not obedient from the heart to the law qua the law. You can't be. The law threatens us. It gives us a threat. It gives us demands. And you're not going to have a commitment from the heart to it based on your motivations here. You're going to be afraid of the law. You're not going to be committed to it. But it's going to be the gospel. Now, some people are going to ask, though, well, how am I obedient to the gospel if the gospel is a free gift? Great question. The gospel is obeyed when the gospel is believed. The Bible does not tell us believe in Jesus the same way the Bible tells us don't steal. When you are told don't steal, you are told, hey, don't be a thief or else. Do not do this or else all this wrath comes down on you. The way the gospel is presented and the way obeying the gospel is it's I'm inviting you to the table of faith. I am inviting you to be brought here. That's a good thing. God tells us to obey the gospel the same way you invite your friend to a party. And if they obey that invitation, well, cool. You now freely give them the benefits of the fun that you have at that party. That's obeying the gospel. But notice here, it says... The standard of teaching to which you were committed. I like that in the King James, the phrasing there was, you were handed over. <laughs> because the Greek conjugation of that verb is passive. You did not commit yourself to these teachings. You were committed to them. So this interacts with monergism. How does God work in conversion? Does he tell us with the gospel, hey, you're invited, come to my party, and then you make the decision whether or not you're going to come to the party? No, it's more like God brings you to the party and says, hey, do you want to stay? This is real, friend. You're invited here. You're already here. Stay with us. He imbues us with that enlightening faith, and then 
you have the choice whether or not you are going to resist that grace offered to you. Grace is resistible, but the conversion, the opening of the eyes of faith is there. That is God doing it. And he is committing you to that teaching so that you cannot really in good faith deny it. So St. Paul is thankful in verse 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, he says in verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. St. Paul is saying, listen, you guys are already there. God brought you to the faith. Because he brought you here, you have become obedient. And that is an active verb there. So God brought you to the party. You decided to stay. You saw how good this is. And you've become slaves of righteousness from there. Okay, great. He's thankful for that. This helps us to understand so much of this chapter because every other verse when he's telling us to not sin, he's saying that's not you anymore, Roman church. You're not that guy anymore. You're at the party. You've committed yourselves to Christ. It's almost like he's not even addressing the willy-nilly party themselves here. He's addressing those who are faithful believers in the Roman church now, saying, hey, all of you guys don't fall for this. Don't fall for what the willy-nilly party is saying, because listen, you're obedient from the heart to the gospel that God brought you to. And that means you're set free from sin. You've become slaves of righteousness. But verse 19 then confuses us, doesn't it? Because he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification is saint paul being a weirdo hipster here saying like listen guys i have to dumb this down for you because you just don't got it okay you're not as cultured as me I don't think St. Paul is saying that. I do agree with the commentary in the Lutheran Study Bible that this is more about how St. Paul is using a slavery analogy here. Slaves serve because they have to. And that's a limited analogy. The Christian is a slave because he wants to be. We don't want to have this implication of uh, slavery as something that is this burdensome, toiling thing. And you're going to be a slave either way. You're going to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness based on, well, has God opened your eyes? Has he brought you to the party? But to call it slavery is a little bit of a misnomer. Or at least it should have the asterisk that this is willing, joyful, grateful obedience to God. Not, hey, he made me a slave and... I guess I have to do this. No, you should never resent serving God. You should never resent obedience to God as a burdensome thing. I think that's what he's getting at. Because he says, Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So one of the fruits of the Spirit that St. Paul is going to bring up in the book of Galatians is joy, 
you know, love, joy, peace, faithfulness, kindness, etc., etc. It shouldn't be, I am super duper forced to do this. That's not grace. But something to notice here in that verse, though, when he says, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. I believe it is one of the Goodness gracious, I think it is Walther who said God punishes sin by permitting more sin. <laughs> when you sin, you're going to end up sinning more. It's kind of like a, a slippery slope, a snowballing effect. St. Paul is commenting on this saying, like, look at the mess you were in. You were on this snowballing, it keeps getting worse thing here, and that's not you anymore. You're free from that. So now, live accordingly. Keep doing what you guys are doing as slaves of righteousness leading to sanctification. Am I making sense here? A good way to put this for us to understand, I'm sure everybody here has heard of the road when it comes to pornography addiction. You start looking at the J.C. Penney catalog, looking at the, the pretty ladies in swimsuits. Then you need a little bit more and you're misguided childhood friend shows you his uncle's Playboy magazines. And that does it for a while for you, but you need more. And so then that becomes, oh, whoa, you, you get to use a computer now. Your, your dad let you surf the web. I wonder if I can Google boobies. And then you start really seeing that the world is your oyster if you're a pornography addict. And that gets into video, and that gets into more and more depraved topics in videos, because it's never fully enough for our flesh. It's enough for a little bit. It's enough to satisfy that itch for a little bit, but then you need something just a little bit dirtier after that, and after that, and after that, until you get these weird guys that have abandoned their natural sexuality for something that will kill them. Or they've gone off the deep end and they find themselves getting arrested for possession of child pornography. The road, the snowballing effect of sin and of pornography and, well, so many other kinds of sin as well, that's a real thing. Sin leads to more sin. And St. Paul here is saying, listen, you were freed from that. You were freed before it was way too late. You were freed before the, uh, the effects of reprobation kick in. God loved you so much that he pulled you out of that. And now you can have a different snowballing effect. You can present your members as slaves to righteousness, obedience, leading to sanctification. Now, we do want to note the parallelism here. Because he said in verse 16 that obedience leads to righteousness. So, Bringing up this parallelism idea, we get the conclusion that obedience leads to righteousness and being slaves to righteousness leads to sanctification. It is through our obedience to God's commands that the Holy Spirit likes to work on our character and sanctify us. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church must love this verse and this conclusion that it draws because there is a strain of thought in Orthodoxy I don't think it's a universal idea, but there's a strain of thought that says, well, you are saved, yes, through faith, but really it's all about sanctification. It's about climbing that divine ladder there until you finally experience theosis and witness the Tabor light, 
And that is your real justification, kind of a justification through theosis idea. Again, not all orthodox. They don't really have a big unified, simple catechism for everybody to look at like the Roman Catholic Church has. Big but simple. They don't have that. So there is a tendency among some of the more monastic, ascetic orthodox believers to really feel like, yes, uh, we are saved through the process of sanctification. Salvation is a process. I would disagree because St. Paul has said over and over and over again that you are not justified by the works of the law. You are not saved by the works of the law. And in obeying God, in obedience, which does lead to righteousness, and again, my take is that that's civic righteousness, if that's going to help out in sanctification, then St. Paul having denied that your obedience really saves you, then it is not sanctification that saves you. Sanctification has three parts to it. There's initial sanctification, which is the moment you believe when you are baptized. God says, this is a saint. He is united to Christ, my son. He is a saint. Then there is progressive sanctification. Throughout your life as a Christian, you keep trying to obey God and getting more righteous according to obedience throughout your life. Now, we are all still stinky, miserable sinners, so it's an up and down thing. It's not a straight line up on the graph. You know, a big line go up. It's not like that, but that still isn't the means of your salvation. That is Christ. He is the one that saves you. But then there's final sanctification, which is you are sealed forever as a saint because your mortal coil has been shed. You have fought the good fight. You have won the battle. You've gone through the war your entire life. You die according to the flesh and now enjoy eternity. <laughs> Await the resurrection and enjoy all the wonderful things God has for you. That's final sanctification. St. Paul is talking about the contribution of obedience and civic righteousness to progressive sanctification in this life where God is working on your character. And these other verses, I believe, do tend to support that argument. From verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Saying, what's the fruit you got from that gardener? Oh, death fruit. You know, it's going to kill me. <laughs> oh, well, that's a crappy garden there, gardener. Yeah, I know. It's, it's pretty hard. <laughs> and St. Paul is saying, okay, that you were free from righteousness back in the day before you were a Christian. But now, seeing that that's the end of it, now that you see that that's death. In verse 22, he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now note that he says fruit. By their fruits you shall know them. Fruit comes from plants. How do plants work? Well, the gardener typically puts a seed down 
and he waters it or he waits for it to rain and then he hopes that it grows and he hopes that bugs don't eat it, birds don't get it, etc. and so forth. Is this a perfect analogy for our Lord Jesus Christ telling the apostles, I am the vine, you are the branches? No, but yes. Yes. Plants don't do anything by themselves. Insofar as we are plants, we cannot say that we have such charge over our sanctification and our fruits that we do it all, or even most of it. We accept the nourishment that God gives us in the faith, and he does 99.99999% of that work in sanctification. It's fruit, right? And even if St. Paul is saying that, no, 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 you are the gardener, you are watering this plant, how much are you really responsible for that plant growing? You can plant a seed. You can uh, maybe get your watering can out, but did you provide the water? Did you make it rain? Did you put the nutrients in that soil? Did you make sure the soil was good by itself? Could you, in the first century AD, do all your nice chemistry tests to make sure, yep, this is some good soil here? And then did you personally make the plant grow? No, the answer to all these things is God did it. He's the one that makes it rain. He's the one that brings the good soil out. He is the one that makes the plant grow. Uh, not an automatic process. And by all means, the Christian is a busy person. He's a busy man doing stuff and trying his best to obey. You are called to be busy in the faith. Faith is a busy thing, as Luther says. But at the end of the day, God is the one getting all the credit for this. Because he is the chief actor in our sanctification. We are doing our best to go along with it and obey as we can. So he says, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Just like with a plant, sanctification is not your baby. It's God's. Sanctification is through the Holy Spirit who does sanctify you. Now, do you cooperate with that? Absolutely. But are you the one responsible for it to such extent that you can say you earned it? Absolutely not. Everything else in the book of Romans shows a serious denial of that. But God being the one who does sanctify us, who makes that plant grow, who brings that fruit forth, means he's the one in charge here. He is the one who deserves 100% of the credit for it. And we continue on here in verse 23, and everybody sees this on bumper stickers every now and then. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift, this eternal life that is the end of sanctification, the telos of it. Telos can mean a purpose, a striving, the, the reason it's there. That's what sanctification is for. But if it's a free gift, this eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, then he is the one making that sanctification happen. And praise be to God for that, because now I can, as a willing, happy, joyous slave, joyous servant to our Lord, say, Christ has done it all for me. Hallelujah. And now I'm going to do my best to serve him and avoid that willy-nilly party like it's the plague. Amen and amen.